I was just a child when our parish church burnt to the ground. We paid for the new church, in part, by a seat tax, also known as pew rent. On Sunday mornings, the ushers in the narthex collected 25 cents from every adult coming into church. Children under 16 got free. And and remember, in 1954, a gallon of gas cost about 28 cents, uh, a lot cheaper than what you're paying for today. On the other side of town, there was a small church called the Free Methodist Church, I don't know what the difference between a free Methodist and a regular Methodist was. We had both species in our town. But what impressed me about the free Methodists was the presence of that little word free in the name, the free Methodist church. I thought that everyone, including the Methodist Episcopal Church, as it was known, paid to go to church on Sunday, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, Catholics. The free Methodists didn't charge to get in. In the mid-90s, that church went into schism over the doctrine of sanctification. The pastor walked out and took half the congregation with him. They started a church called the United Holiness Church. And within a few weeks, a series of full-page advertisements began to appear in the local newspaper. These ads announced that the rapture was imminent. The Lord Jesus Christ was coming in power, glory, and judgment. And the date set for this cosmic event was October 30th, 1997, at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time, the same time zone as heaven. In a small town, news like this tends to generate a certain amount of public comment. Even the Catholics wondered where the Holiness Church got this news flash, and people were beginning to exhibit signs of ASD, apocalyptic stress disorder. Of course, the very fact that um, we're here this morning is a hint to how that story ends. 12 noon Eastern Standard Time on October 27th arrived, or October 30th rather, arrived, but the Lord Jesus Christ did not. Church history is littered with groups predicting the end of the space-time continuum. The Montanists in the second century, Joachim of Fiore in the 12th, the Quakers in the 17th, the Seventh-day Adventists in the 19th and the 20th centuries. Add to that list Jim Jones, founder of the People's Temple, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, and Marshall Applegate's Solar Temple. It is a fact that the early church expected the imminent return of Christ. The coming of the Son of Man is one of the central themes of Jesus' preaching. It also has a prominent place in Paul's early epistles, the letter of Peter, and of course the book of Revelation. And the excerpt we heard from Luke's gospel this morning has its parallels in Mark and Matthew. Predictions to the contrary, Christ has not returned. When we sing the creed on Sunday, we remind ourselves that he will come to judge the living and the dead, but the date of that coming is reserved to the Father. This language, though, is completely at home with a Jewish worldview. It's said that the Jews invented history. If so, history has not been kind to the Jewish people. 
Surrounded and persecuted by their hostile pagan neighbors, Israel's prophets announced a day of the Lord when God would rise to judge the nations. This was the way of saying that there was always a reason to hope for the future because God, not kings, not emperors, prime ministers, presidents, governors, mayors, not dog catchers, truant officers, or meter maids, uh, was in control of the future. There is no need to lose heart. His coming, he will put down the mighty from their thrones and raise up the lowly. The passage from Luke's gospel is a testimony to one such time in Israel's struggles for survival. At the beginning of August in the year 70, the city of Jerusalem fell to the 5th, 10th, and 12th Roman legions under Titus. On the 6th, the temple fell and was put to the torch. Josephus tells us it burned for 20 days. An estimated 1.2 one quarter million Jews died over the four-year course of the First Jewish War. Another 15,000 starved to death in the last two weeks of the city, and 95,000 were marched off into captivity. Titus had the city leveled to the ground, but he ordered that one wall be left standing as a reminder to the survivors of the might of Rome. That wall still stands today. It's known as the Wailing Wall. Luke and his readers knew that the destruction of Jerusalem had occurred, and just as Jesus said it would. In their minds, the fate of the temple surely meant the end of the world was close at hand and Christ was coming very soon. If so, what was the point of living for today if there was no promise for a tomorrow? People were abandoning their olive groves, refusing to work or make plans for the future. We know this from St. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. St. Clement of Alexandria, in the mid-2nd century, said that Christians would climb up to the roofs of their houses at midnight, Eastern Standard Time, waiting for Christ's return. It's likely that Luke's motive in writing this chapter was to dampen fear and panic for the coming of the Lord, not enthusiasm, fear, and panic. Instead of wild speculation about the day and the hour, Luke's gospel advises perseverance and ceaseless prayer, the opposite of losing heart while the church waits for Christ's return. We've arrived at the first Sunday of Advent. It is the liturgical season that reminds us that Christianity is a religion of the coming of God. He breaks into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. That first coming was in the weakness of an infant and the suffering of a crucified man on a cross. His final coming, we are told, will be in glory and judgment. In between, there is his hidden coming in the ordinary events of daily life. If you had lived 2,000 years ago, in Israel, and some prophet told you that the Messiah had come, would you have looked for him as, as a baby in a manger or on a cross? Would you have expected him coming and to look like bread and wine? In the deepest sense, the entire Christian life on this side of the headstone 
is lived in Advent, that long space of time lying between the first Christmas and the last judgment. Advent reminds us that the true end of human life is a daily encounter with the God hidden in what we come to call the daily grind.